Good morning. I, uh, wow, I, I'm especially taken this morning with our musicians around here. And uh, say to all of you, thank you so much for leading us in worship through music. Um, wow, isn't it, isn't it awesome to watch God uh, use his people? Some of those people that got talent you and I didn't get. And to see them use it for his glory. That's awesome. I'm going to ask for a little license from you this morning as I begin um, to get a little personal. Um, Typically, you should know if you haven't figured it out by now that when I come to this time uh, of every week, for me, this uh, 30 to 45 minutes are some of the most important moments of every week, and I try to uh, take it as doing serious spiritual business during this time. Uh, And so being personal in this context is not the norm for me, or at least I don't want it to be the norm. And as I go into some of this, I want you to know that uh, I don't suffer from some delirium that uh, thinks that my family is the only one that goes through struggles. I know we all do, and it's a little bit... Uh, wrong for me to get up and act like you don't go through trouble. So I don't want you to think that's where I'm coming from either. But I do think, given the events of this week, uh, the number of conversations that I have had and will uh, even through today, that it's probably efficient use of time for me to give you a report on Lauren and her baby. Uh, And I'll do it as quickly as I can because I have a lot of sermon to pump, pump into a small amount of time. Um, most of you know our daughter Lauren, and most of you know that she, uh, when they were here last Sunday morning, was right at seven months pregnant. Uh, she was having some issues even when they were here, and we sent them home uh, expecting that she was going to go see her doctor and things would, you know, he would deal with it. Her appointment was supposed to be Wednesday. Tuesday morning, I received a text message from Teresa that said she had just been on the phone with Lauren and she had suffered a seizure at home by herself um, and lost about an hour and a half of time. And um, so that precipitated a move to uh, contact the doctor who said, don't come here, go straight to the emergency room. And so her husband left work and picked her up and took her to the emergency room. Um, Blood pressure was uh, dangerously high and... uh, The long and short of that was she developed a condition called eclampsia, and you can go look up whatever that means. Uh, I tell you that I went to look it up while we were in the waiting room at the hospital, and I decided I didn't need to be reading that right there. Um, The doctor's words to us were, um, this is a life-threatening condition, and uh, this is 24-hour period is extremely critical. Uh, That was Tuesday night. By the time Teresa and I, through the day, didn't realize it was that serious, and we were kind of holding off to see what would happen. Finally, about 3.45, Teresa called me and said uh, we should go. So before we could get even to Dayton, um, we got a call from Lauren that said the doctor had finally seen her. Uh, It was a grave enough situation that they were going to take the baby immediately, and the doctor's words were something to the effect uh, we'll take our chances with a premature baby. Uh, your health requires that we do this. So um, 
So that's the bad news side of it, that first 24 hours. Let me just give you, some of you inventors out there, let's get rich together. I have the idea, you fix it, and we'll get rich together, okay? If you can develop a waiting room, hospital waiting room chair that is comfortable at 2 o'clock in the morning, you should get after it. You'll be a rich person. Um, the good news is that uh, they did come through it. Declan is the name. Don't hit me. I didn't pick it. Um, it means, in, it's an Irish name, and it means man of prayer. And um, it also was the name of a terrorist in a famous movie not too long ago. <laughs> you decide. Um, Declan was born at um, 31 weeks plus a few days. It's supposed to be 40, I'm told. Um, it was apparent almost immediately. By the time we got to uh, the Woodlands, to the hospital there, he had already been born, and he was doing well. Um, Lauren was another story at that point. But uh, now, uh, they're both doing well. Lauren got to go home Friday. Uh, Declan is uh, beating the time frames that they're giving him on different things. And um, lungs fully developed as far as we can tell. He's, he's not on any kind of oxygen or anything like that. And uh, he screams pretty good. So for a, he was born at three pounds, two ounces. I said on Facebook, and by the way, if you don't have Facebook, I'm sorry. That was the best way for us to communicate at that time. But um, I said at the time, three pounds, five ounces. I'm corrected later and it's three pounds two ounces last I heard was yesterday and he was down to two pounds and 14 ounces um, but that's understandable he's done well so uh, thank you I, all of that blessed be the name of the Lord and our family uh, has has been overwhelmed with your kindness and your support. So thank you for that. Uh, Teresa has been over there for a couple of days and will be there helping Lauren through Tuesday. Uh, I will leave uh, this afternoon and go over there for a little while and come back sometime tomorrow. But thank you so much for your prayer. Thank you for allowing me five minutes or so here to give you an update. Um, we will continue to update on Facebook and other places as is warranted, but at this point it looks like all systems are go. Okay? So thank you for that. All right, take your Bibles. Matthew 13, we'll get there in just a moment, but uh, I, I want to make this comment. I don't have time to do a whole lot of support of it. Um, just we can have the discussion in private if you want to do that. From the earliest point of human history, imposters have lurked where strategic battles are fought. Let me say that again, because I want you to get it. From the earliest moment of human history, and specifically I'm thinking of Adam and Eve and a certain serpent. From the earliest moments of human history, imposters have lurked where strategic battles are fought. So begins our examination of this installment of the parables that Jesus taught. And in this passage, Matthew chapter 13, 
we find Jesus actually hard on the heels of one of the other parables that we've already looked at, the parable of the soils or the seed or the sower, depending on how your Bible would headline that. Coming hard off of that parable, Jesus said the sower went out to sow and some landed on hard ground and some landed on thorny ground and some rocky ground and some on good ground. You remember all of that, right? So on the hard, hard on the heels of that, Jesus tells this parable. And this is a parable about imposters. But I want to warn you before we get into it, I have, according to the clock at the back, 18 minutes or so. I'll just tell you, it's not going to be 18 minutes, all right? If you have to leave, then feel free to, but uh, we'll probably go a little bit over. But uh, there are several things here I want us to get, but I'm, this is, I'm just going to tell you now, more questions are raised as we come into this parable than what we might be able to answer today. And we'll look into some of those questions on Wednesday night as we follow up as we've been doing. But for today, I want us to get this. So I'm going to take the time, even though time is short here, I want to take the time to read this and then also the explanation because this is one of those few parables where Jesus gives the parable and then comes back around later and explains to his disciples what he wants them to get from it. So we pick up in Matthew chapter 13, verse uh, 24. We'll go through verse 30. He says, And Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And so when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first. And bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And I rather suspect that his, di- uh, his disciples, I'll start to say diapers, that uh, tell you where I've been. Uh, his disciples, maybe those do correlate, uh, his disciples must have scratched their heads and went, huh? Because we find now, if we drop down to verse 36, then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, uh huh, explain. To us, the parable of the weeds of the field. And so, verse 37, Jesus answers The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the Word, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to refer back into those parables some, but let me see if I can fast track what we want to say. I actually have four different points I want to make from this, so you know there's no way we'll get to that. One of those points is the one that I want to expand on. So let's see if we can get to that with a quick one. 
First of all, we have to get context here. I've said that many times in these services, but also in our Wednesday night studies. Context is critical if we're to understand what the parable is about and what Jesus is trying to deal with. And in this case, let me make sure that we can go backwards enough and just quickly establish that Jesus tells these parables in Matthew 13. He's teaching his disciples. He's talking about the kingdom of God, but he's telling them into an atmosphere that is electric with opposition. The Pharisees and the scribes have taken their stand against Jesus and their attacks on him are coming fairly frequently by this time. I can't help but wonder if his disciples had a hard time understanding the reason for that. After all, they've been with Jesus and they've heard his teaching. You go back to the Sermon on the Mount, you just walk through Matthew's gospel to this point and you'll find this opposition as it builds Ultimately, it will culminate in a cross outside of Jerusalem with Jesus hanging on it. This opposition as it builds must not have made any sense to those disciples. After all, they've heard him talk about God and about the kingdom of God. The very thing that these Pharisees and scribes are supposed to represent in Jewish life, Jesus embodies that. How how could they be against a guy who teaches with the authority that Jesus teaches? How could they be against a guy who does the miracles of healing and other things that Jesus would do? I'm sure that his disciples must have gone, I don't understand. Why are they after you, Jesus? And so in Matthew 13, Jesus steps into that opposition, as I said, an atmosphere charged with opposition. Maybe I shouldn't assume anything about us, but let me just ask this question. Do you sense that Christians and Christianity in 21st century America are under attack? Sure. I hear that a lot. I sense that a lot. You don't have to look very far to figure out that some of the very core values that we carry are not really accepted or appreciated in 21st century American life. How do we respond to that? Here we are believing we're trying, this is a dangerous way to say this, I know, but we're trying to live the life and the way that God called us to. And people on the outside don't care for that. The opposition is not the same as Jesus faced from the religious leaders, but there is opposition nonetheless for us. How do we respond to that? I, I said it in the earlier service. I liked it. Enough. I'm, I'm, I'll give you a little context, though. I got to go into the NICU, the intensive care unit for our grandson. Uh, and when I walked in, of course, he's laying there in this tube, very much like Spock and Star Trek kind of thing. And uh, so had a chance to reach in there and put my hands on him. And his, he's so small. You saw some, some of you saw pictures, I know. And as soon as I, t- <laughs> I really would prefer to put this off on my wife. But as soon as I put my hands on him, he started screaming. <laughs> and it, it's not like a baby scream because he's not really even half a baby yet. It's this real, you know, almost a whiny kind of. Outburst, little 
chin quivers. And I thought at the time, this is just like some church people. I think, I think that I'm comfortable in saying that the battle cry of Christians in 21st century America is... Things are not going the way we want them to go. How do we respond to that? A lot of, lot of waiting room time this week. So I was reading stuff as it came across, blogs, etc. There was an article written by somebody from Baptist Life in press who has done some research with the new generation of Southern Baptist preachers. There was a time when I was part of the new generation of Southern Baptist preachers. Now I'm just a Baptist preacher. But you know these young guys? They don't fight against the second-rate place we have in culture as Christians anymore. Now, that's what our generation does, okay? Those older ones of us, we cry about the fact that things aren't going the way we want them to go. The new generation of Southern Baptist pastors, according to this author anyway, I think they're pretty smart because they're saying, okay, we're not the dominant culture anymore in American life. So instead of crying about that, we intend to influence that. That's smart. Because whether you want to hear it or not, and whether I'm totally right or not, this is what I believe, uh, it's not likely to get any better. The chances are good that the conditions that we have where we as Christian people are not the dominant voice in the culture of the day, that's just going to be. And so we need clarity on how we're going to speak into that culture without whining. So that gets me to the second point. The second point is this. Some of this opposition is inside. Okay. First point is there's opposition. Okay. But this parable teaches us that some of this op- uh, opposition is on the inside. But I need to make sure that we get our terminology right here. Because there is a whole swath of Christian writers, commentators and scholars and preachers who look at this passage and they take this as an argument for church discipline. In other words, they push this whole judgment end of it and, and there's going to be this separation. I, nobody, I'm certainly not me, is, is saying that's not going to happen. Clearly it is. That's Jesus' strong point through this parable. But the parable is more than just talking about doing church discipline. Here's what I mean by the inside. A lot of times the scholars want to take this as talking about the church and and these imposters, to use the word I've chosen for the day, these imposters are people who are inside the church who look like us. But that's not what Jesus says here. And we need to make sure that we're good enough students of the parable to hear what he says because in the explanation part of this, verse 38 is a critical verse for us to get this right. The field, now how does yours read? Does your translation say the field is the church? If you have a Bible that says the field is the church, 
If you'll bring that up to me after church, I'll trade with you and give you a good Bible. Okay, because no translation should say the field is the church because Jesus isn't talking about the church here. The field is the world. Now, he gives us some other good points of clarification. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The, uh, the weeds are the children of the evil one. Here's the deal. This is not a picture. This parable is not a picture of life in the church. He is not saying that there will be imposters who come into the church. Let me just put a pause there and say this. Clearly, there are imposters in the church. Jesus is not saying that won't happen. That's just not his point here. His point is, if the field that he's talking about in the parable is the world, and these children of the kingdom are the good seed that he plants in the world, oh boy, that's a mouthful. The picture here, you ready for the, I'll just pull it all together. The, the picture here is of Christians and non-Christians coexisting in life. That's the picture. And so hear what I said. There are imposters on the inside. Now, I think that gets to where the turn is here, where the hook is with what Jesus has to say in this parable, where he comes slant for us, and I'll get to that before we close. But let's get this part of it right. The picture is of Christians and non-Christians as they coexist in this life, in this world. Don't miss that. Because many churches and many Christians work extra hard not to coexist with children of the evil one. As a matter of fact, we work awfully hard at building walls of separation. The, the way Jesus uses this parable is really intriguing to me because for a while I lived in what I call farm and country. Now, everywhere I've served as a pastor, there have been people in our church who were farmers at various levels. But nowhere was that more true on a big scale than when I lived in the panhandle of Texas. When I served First Baptist Church of Halfway, uh, way up close to Plainview, uh, we lived out on a farm. It was a house that uh, was actually for some of the farmhands for this one particular farmer. And he retired. He had this house there. And so we were able to live there. And literally, uh, from here to that front line of chairs... Uh, was the only backyard I had because after that was a farm that, uh, particularly for corn, that stretched for over a mile behind us. And so I was able to watch as this happened. And so they went through the preparation. Pro Nobody works harder than a farmer. I fully believe that. Uh, and these guys would prepare the ground and then they would go to planting and they would do that and it's all well and good and, you know, plants would start coming up and uh, for a long time, it was just a nice little environment there. And then that corn got, you know, corn grows fast up there anyway and that corn got taller than me and, and what used to be a field where I could see 15 miles into Plainview, literally. All of a sudden now, I couldn't see past that first set of corn stalks because when that corn grew up, it grew up and it went this way across. And so you couldn't even, other than this far off of the ground, you couldn't even see that there were rows in that corn. 
Now, I want you to take that because if you walk out, and once I decided I'd walk out into that stuff and I laid it about 10 feet in, I thought, I ain't doing this. First of all, you get lost in there. It's so overgrown. But I want us to hear that and hear what Jesus is saying here because the picture here is of this farmer who goes out and he plants the crop that he wants, but the weeds that come in look just like the crop that he wants. It's darnell or darnel, however it's supposed to be pronounced there, but it's a real live weed over in the Middle East and it looks just like wheat until it comes time for that wheat to bear fruit, just like the parable says. And Jesus points that out. And, and, and the picture that we have, picture in your mind that cornfield that I'm talking about, it, it's just all laced in together. Let me say it this way. The call to us as his people in the field that is the world is that we are to regularly be rubbing shoulders with children of the evil one. That's the parable. But churches work hard and Christians work hard to avoid that. I think there's good reason for that. I, I, I can easily go, okay, well, here's a good reason for that. And here's a good reason for that. I tell you, when my son got attacked in high school, uh, I thought that was a good reason. We'll just pull back. And as many good reasons, hear me very carefully, as many good reasons as I could find to withdraw from this world, I can't find a single reason that's biblical that supports that. I don't think it's any accident that at this point in Jesus' ministry with these guys, and he's beginning to teach them about the economy of God, that he tells a parable that forces them into the world. The nature of our spiritual heritage is misleading. Because much of our spiritual heritage says, identify evil and run from it. Now, I know some of you are going, oh, wait a minute, I could take you to this verse scripture, this verse scripture. I'll get you. I'm told, I don't want you to think I've jumped off of some wagon and hit my head. I'm not saying it's easy. As a matter of fact, this is the point in the sermon I need to say, there's tension here for us. Especially those of us with children and we're trying to figure out how do we raise our children in an environment that, that we don't let them just get carried off with all of this stuff. That's a good question. There is tension for us in this. How do we live holy lives and yet at the same time be out in a world that is decidedly unholy? One of the things we have to remember is we, this is war. This is spiritual warfare. This story that Jesus tells here is essentially bioterrorism. An enemy comes in and tries to kill the crop that that guy needs to sustain his family and his life. It's war. One of the great, if you're looking for a good read this summer, if you can find it, uh, one of the best reads that I ever had is a fiction book. Uh, but it opened my eyes, because it's based on a lot of spiritual truth, it opened my eyes to the reality of spiritual warfare. This battle of God and Satan of which we are part. The book is called This Present Darkness. If you haven't read that, you should. Now, remember, it's a work of fiction. Don't believe everything you read in it. 
But a lot of it is based on biblical stuff. So it's a good Bible study tool for you too. Go to scripture with that. Say, okay, how does this measure up? Let me tell you something. It paints a vivid picture of the battle that we are in. This present darkness, Frank Peretti. So we should feel this tension. This really is war. But it calls for unconventional warfare. You know, uh, I, I'm not necessarily recommending that you watch this movie. Um, but it's called The Patriot with Mel Gibson in it. Now, one of the reasons I bring that up here, first of all, Mel Gibson, Braveheart was like this. You know, has the ability to write these characters that when it comes time for the speech that says, okay, let's go, let's kill them, you know, that motivational speech. Um, he's really good at that. But in this movie called The Patriot, I think that's what it was called, um, it's, it's set in the Revolutionary War. And you have the British Army, and I think this is fairly factual, even though I don't think it was a movie based on fact, but uh, fairly factual that the tactics of the British military coming into the Revolutionary War was what they had found worked in Europe, or sort of worked in Europe, and that is we'll line all of our guys up and we'll do a volley of musket shots and you'll all fall down dead and we win. The problem with that was, according to this movie especially, but I think historically accurate too, is that the reason the Americans won that war largely is because they refused to fight that kind of war. And so guerrilla warfare was more their approach and that sneak up on them and you know, wait for them on the road and jump out on them and kill them dead and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that's what I'm saying. We need, as we come into this battle of life, we need to adopt some unconventional warfare. Here's what I think is the way to do it. This has to be kingdom people who have characteristics of the king using kingdom tactics. In other words, we can't just lob verbal volleys from Facebook or Twitter or TV. Somehow, we have to find a way to engage the forces of the evil one with the power of the Holy Spirit. I know it makes Baptist people really nervous when I start talking about the Holy Spirit. Let's take the gay marriage debate. Oh, look at the time. I guess we should go. <laughs> Let me just say a few things tied to that. It's, it's difficult for Baptist preachers, or preachers to come to talk about this debate in American society because we have in our services every week, every pastor, I'm sure, has people on all sides of the fence on gay marriage debate. For one, I know this to be true. Uh, most of us pastors have people in our services who have family members who are frontline people on that debate. People in their families, extended families, who are intent on fighting for gay rights. We also have in our services those people who just would just as soon cut off the head of every person who claims to be gay and be happy about it. 
where do we, and we also know what Scripture says about the whole thing. So how do we do that? And, and now I'm back to the war cry for Christians. You know, it's, well, we, we lost, we lost. Let's be unconventional in the way we fight this. Let me give you a truth. This, I, I think this is good spiritual truth, biblically based. If we take John chapter 10, verse 10 seriously, by the way, what does that say? The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly. If we take that seriously, there's two truths that we should hold on to. One of them is any lifestyle, whether it's the gay marriage thing or not, any lifestyle outside of God's parameters is bound to end in disillusionment and pain. Okay, you can go back and listen to this sermon to get that statement again. That's huge. And if that's the case, then by definition, people who are living outside of God's parameters will reach a point in their lives where they go, this is not working. And when they do that, who are they going to go to for help? It won't be the Christian person who said, off with their heads, every last one of them. You see, unconventional warfare in this context. Remember, Jesus said they're, they're planted out there together. They've got to rub shoulders. Unconventional warfare says engage them with a compassion that only God can supply. And take life when you go. That's one of the reasons that our statement of vision on, our, on the masthead of our bulletin. A community, a connected community of people who have gathered together regularly for creating disciples, gathered together for vibrant worship, and dispersing into the community, sharing life. That's the living out in the field with the weeds part. But it is not enough to go out and fight the old-time conventional way, which is smack them in the head with the Bible and say, now do what it says, because they're not doing that. Is it possible to love somebody to Christ? Yes. Is it possible for Jesus to do that? He did it with me. But you see, that's a lot harder than it is to have an early harvest as these guys wanted. Somebody came up to me after the first service and gave me this example, and I think they're spot on. You know, the best example that they could think of of what I'm talking about here was that church in South Carolina where those people were killed at a Bible study. And their response to that, you remember that? These nine people were shot, wasn't that South Carolina? Hello, I know it's lunch. Uh, how did that church respond to that? They responded to that in Christian love. We're not going to do the marching and, you know, Christian lives matter, to paraphrase. They just said, we're going to love each other. And we're going to love our way through this. This is a call to compassionate interaction with the enemy, led by the Holy Spirit and wielding Holy Spirit weapons. And you can insert in there the fruit of the Spirit. So how we respond to this is critical to the success of it. 
Here's the turn. Here's the slant that Jesus throws into this. We normally would expect to get the weeds out. Don't you do that in your garden? You know, weeds have a way of taking over. As a kid, pre-teenage kid in Ballinger, Texas, my dad handed me a hoe. He stuck me in the car. He drove me out to a church member's property where he had a huge watermelon farm on this sandy soil. And he said, get out of the car, take that hoe. I'll be back for you in four hours. Chop all the weeds out of that watermelon patch. I hate watermelon. Weeds have a way of taking over. And that's our fear. Now we see why we feel like we have to build walls and hide behind them. Because we're afraid the weeds are going to take over. Jesus at the end of this helps us understand. It may look like they're taking over, but there comes a day when it's all taken care of. But it's in the meantime that Jesus is emphasizing here. This is really not a parable just about the judgment at the end. This is a parable about the living in the meantime. And sometimes I wonder how pleased Jesus is with us about how we're doing this. Maybe we're the imposters bringing in a cloak of religiosity and hearts of stone. And Jesus says, rub shoulders with them. Let's pray. And so, Father, once again, we find ourselves exposed.